Psalm 105 is one of the historical psalms that give an overview, a review of God's dealings with his people. And this one certainly is one of the most outstanding. We'll break into the context here at, oh, at verse 17. Up to this point, been reviewing the history of Abraham and the famine then that came that caused Jacob and his sons to sojourn into Egypt. So we pick it up at verse 17. He sent a man before them, even Joseph, who was sold for a servant, whose feet they hurt with fetters. He was laid in iron. Until the time that his word came, the word of the Lord tried him. The king sent and loosed him, even the ruler of the people, and let him go free, and made him lord of his house and ruler of all his substance, to bind his princes at his pleasure and to teach his senators, senators wisdom. Israel also came into Egypt, and Jacob sojourned in the land of Hammon. And then the following verses introduce Moses, who delivered the people then from the land of Egypt, reviewing there the plagues and so forth. But this introduces the theme that I want us to address a little bit today. So let's pray. Our dear Lord, we come again with thanksgiving for this thy day, a day that we can come gathered together into thy house to worship thee, to hear thy word speaking to us. And we pray, Lord, that as we've reflected already today upon the wonder of the gospel and the power of the gospel to transform sinners to saints, that that might be the joy of our hearts. And Lord, as we come now to consider this subject that is connected to thy word, that we would come to a greater understanding, a greater appreciation that thou art the God of history, that thou art the God of providence that rules all, even those that are ignorant of who thou art, that thou dost rule them to the end of thy glory and for the good of thy people. So guide our thoughts today in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the last couple of weeks, we have talked in some very general terms about the setting of the world in which the Bible uh, was given. And today, I want to focus now particularly upon the relationship that Israel had with Egypt and what we know concerning Egyptian history as it relates to the Bible, giving us some understanding of really what was going on, and I believe a greater appreciation to see the hand of God's providence as we have now the Word of God before us. So I've given you another little handout uh, for today that will put this within a general context. And I'm just going to be suggestive, but I think it is fascinating to see the information that we have from Egyptian history that 
complements the history that we have in the scripture itself. Now just for some introductory material there, I've given to you the general history of Egypt beginning in the Archaic period, Dynasty 1 all the way through Dynasty 30. Now there was an Egyptian priest uh, in the, oh, the third century BC that divided all of the Egyptian history into these 30 dynasties. And that's what's being reflected here. Even though that's very ancient, uh, we still utilize that terminology. Talk about the 30 dynasties of Egypt in these various, in these various periods. I've given some dates there. I've given some dates. I'm going to take time as to how we establish all of these BC dates. That's obviously not what their calendars were back in those days. Uh, but there are some ways that we are fairly certain as to what the actual calendar dates were would be from our perspective. Plus or minus 50 years or so uh, on some of these, but it gives you a general idea. Now, I want to focus particularly upon the Middle Kingdom because that's going to bring to us the context that we read here uh, this morning and some very interesting uh, parallels. But it is interesting that most of Egyptian history, as far as Egyptian glory days are concerned, uh, were in the past by the time we have the interaction between Israel and Egypt. So all the archaic period, the old kingdom, first intermediate kingdom, uh, all the way to the new empire, really it's, it's going to be at the new empire uh, where we're going to have Moses coming in and where we're going to have the exodus taking place. Uh, so just before the new kingdom, the new empire in the second intermediate kingdom, some of the middle kingdom probably with Abraham coming in, uh, but for the, I say the most part, by the time Moses is coming on the scene, uh, the majority of Egyptian history, as far as their glory days are concerned, uh, are already are already past. We talked a little bit last time about the old kingdom, the pyramid text anyway, so I'm not going to say any more about that. But the Middle Kingdom, the Middle Kingdom, we're dating there about 2050 to 1780 B.C. Uh, after the first intermediate period. These intermediate periods were times of unrest. They were times of some kind of a political restructuring in the land uh, and uh, sometimes chaos. And it was during probably the latter part of the first intermediate kingdom, the middle kingdom that Abraham made his sojourn into, uh, into Egypt. And then we know the uh, word that uh, was going to come uh, then later through, uh, through Joseph. Now, the characteristic of the Middle Kingdom, and this is the point of contact that I want us to uh, make here, the primary contribution, or the not so much contribution, I suppose, but the, the primary feature of the Middle Kingdom was the reunification of the land under the auspices then of the Pharaoh. Now, Here's the significance. Prior to this time, 
at least in the intermediate period, the lands of Egypt were held privately. It was kind of like a feudalistic system. Uh, we called them gnomes, and uh, landowners would be all over the land and uh, independent, but still under the general uh, government of the pharaoh. But the land was distributed and owned by various landowners. And what was characteristic of the Middle Kingdom was now that all of these lands that were under private uh, ownership, this feudalistic system, were now brought under the control, brought under the possession uh, of Pharaoh. Now, this happens. This happens in connection with the 12th dynasty, and you can see the, some of the information, some of the other stuff that I've given there are interesting as well. But this is the Egypt of the patriarchs. We're going to date Jacob's migration. Remember the story? We've touched on it here just a little bit in our reading in Psalm 105, that there was a famine. There was a famine in the land of Palestine uh, that caused Jacob. They had heard that there was corn in Egypt. Remember the context there? Joseph had been sold into slavery uh, by his brothers, uh, imprisoned, uh, treated harshly. But then with the dream of Pharaoh that there, uh, by, by the interpretation of Joseph, Pharaoh didn't know what he was talking about or what he had dreamed about. None of the other magicians uh, knew. So they brought Joseph in to interpret the dream. Uh, and it was going to be two dreams, right? The, the corn and the famine and the, the fat cows and skinny cows. And, and Joseph interpreted that those two dreams to be the same thing, that there's going to be seven years of plenty going to be seven years of plenty, but that's going to be followed by seven years of extreme famine. And what to do? How, what are we going to do here? And so Joseph was put in charge, remember? Joseph was put in charge and uh, interpreted those dreams, and he, they stored the food for seven years, uh, made a nice stockpile of food for those seven years uh, in preparation for the famine. And so the famine came to Egypt as well as Palestine. But nobody else knew about this, so everybody else is starving, so they're coming to Egypt now for help. Joseph has been set into this position of authority to administer uh, the, the goods that had been stored up, uh, that had been stored up by the uh, previous seven years. And this is what brought ultimately Jacob uh, into the land, and we date that to about 1870. Now that puts Joseph then in the twelfth, in the twelfth dynasty. Now it's interesting, to me it's interesting, but I've got a little threshold of interest here on some of this stuff. It's interesting to me that the pharaohs are never named uh, in the Bible until we come into the uh, period of decline. And one of the interesting things about the Egyptian history was they were obsessed with ancestor worship. Uh, you, you have in Egypt, you can still see it today, what the, the Karnak uh, uh, king list there on the walls at Karnak and Abydus king list. And, and as these kings would list all of their ancestors, name after name, and their primary contributions, uh, they were proud of who they were. They were proud of their ancestry and whatever else. And it's almost God's way of humiliating them because every time in the Bible, 
every time in the Bible the Pharaoh is mentioned, his name is not given to us. Uh, he's just called Pharaoh. Uh, names were so important in their realm, but God is blowing them off, if you will. No, just call him Pharaoh. It's not until the period of decline, when Israel is now, or, or when Egypt is now just internationally nobody, that now we start learning about some of their names. There's Shajak and there's Terhaka, and now we learn the names of the Bible. But it's almost God's, it's a bit of irony there. Uh, that names that were so important to them, God just regards as not important. But because of what we know about the Egyptian name list, that Karnak and Abydos, we can, on the basis of the dating, uh, figure out who these pharaohs were, and we can give names to them. Now, I'm saying we're dating the migration of, we're dating the migration of. Uh, Jacob to about 1870 or so. That would put Joseph, I'm saying, in the 12th dynasty. Let me just back up and say this before I say anything else. One of the principal ways that we come to date these uh, is from 1 Kings. If you have your Bible there, let me just take you to 1 Kings chapter 6 here for a moment. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month Ziph, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, my guess is that's not anybody's life verse, all right? Uh, here is this statement that 480 years before this time, the exodus took place. But it's a crucial statement here. It's a crucial statement in establishing the chronology of this period. We date Solomon, and this is the, why this is so important to me here. Uh, the dates of Solomon really are not disputed. I don't care whether you're conservative, whether you're liberal in regard to your view of the scriptures. Uh, the date of Solomon is fairly well settled at 966 BC. Put David about uh, put David about a thousand. Solomon begins his reign at seven, not nine seventy uh, BC, and so we're talking here about the uh, the fourth year, the four hundred eightieth year, which was Solomon's sixth year. So that puts it at nine sixty six. All right, and he says that the Exodus occurred four hundred and eighty years prior to that. So if we know fairly certain that Solomon, this year, was 966. All you have to do is add 480 to that. It takes you to 1446 B.C. That, from the biblical evidence, is the date of the Exodus. All right, and I will maintain that strongly. Uh, it, it grieves me. It grieves me. Typically, when I was a kid, school, uh, it, it was a litmus test as to whether you're conservative or liberal when you dated the Exodus. And as a conservative, I, I date the Exodus to the middle of the 15th century uh, BC, specifically 1446, give or take a couple, five years maybe, uh, but nonetheless in the middle of the 15th century. It was the typical critical view, liberal view, that the Exodus didn't take place until uh, the 13th century. Uh, 
1290 or so, Ramesses being the uh, supposed pharaoh of the Exodus. And I say in my day, when I was in, in school, uh, that was a litmus test. It grieves me that there are even now some evangelical conservatives that are going to hold to the late date, but I'm old school, all right? I'm old school and I still am gonna argue vehemently uh, for that middle 15th century date for the Exodus. That's fixed. Now on the basis of that, we can then calculate uh, the time of the migration of Jacob and so forth. That's where that day, that's where the 18th, they, they were gonna be in the land 400 years, remember? Uh, and so we can figure some of this stuff out on that basis. Now, we're putting then on, on that basis, uh, Joseph to be, the, uh, to be in the position that he was during the administration of the 12th dynasty and particularly under the reign of Sesostris III. Yeah, there's the name of the Pharaoh. Sesostris III uh, is the uh, Pharaoh of Joseph's time period here. And in the Egyptian annals, in the Egyptian annals and records, Sesostris is known for this. This is his claim to fame, uh, that he brought all of the lands, again, under the domain of the central government, that all of that gnomic system, all that land that was under the uh, administration or on, or on the ownership of individuals, during the administration of Sesostris III, was all brought, uh, again, under the ownership and direct control uh, of Pharaoh. And that, I say, was his claim to fame. Now, let me show you this. Look at Genesis 47. Look at Genesis 47. Joseph came, my father, where, where, where do I want here? Yeah, uh, verse 13. And there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very sore, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan fainted by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, for the corn which they bought, and Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money failed in the land of Egypt, in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came unto Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in thy presence, for the money faileth? And Joseph said, Give me your cattle, and I will give you for your cattle if the money failed. And they brought forth cattle unto Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for horses and for flocks and for the cattle of the herds and for the asses, and he fed them with bread for all their cattle for that year. When that year was ended, they came unto him a second year and said unto him, We will not hide it from my Lord, how that our money is spent. My Lord also hath our herds of cattle. There is not aught left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Wherefore should we die before thine eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants unto Pharaoh, and give us seed that we may live and not die, and the land be not desolate. So Pharaoh bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians sold every man his field because the famine prevailed over them, so has the land become Pharaoh's. Now tell me that's not interesting, all right? That, that is fascinating to me. Now, the Bible does not tell me that this is Sesostris III. The Bible does not tell me that 
Sesostris was going to go down in history, in Egyptian history, for the one that brings all the lands back into the ownership under the control of a pharaoh. Uh, not so. And the Egyptian documents don't mention Joseph, right? The Egyptian documents don't say the first thing about Joseph, but when you put those two together, all right, when I take the historical stuff from Egypt and put it now with this inspired uh, and infallible history of, of, of Genesis, yeah, we see, I, I say the compliment. Uh, we know, all right, we know on the basis of the biblical evidence how all that land, why all that land uh, came back under the domain uh, of Pharaoh. Uh, but I say the Egyptians, the Egyptian documents don't say it, but I say it does tell us the fruit it does tell us the fruit of what uh, Joseph did as God, in the providence of God. Uh, he was brought into Egypt, uh, treated harshly, but then exalted to be the deliverer uh, of the people. So that middle kingdom, that middle kingdom was a time uh, where we have the first, apart from Abraham's little sojourn there for a while, uh, it, it's during this middle kingdom, the latter part of it, where we have now uh, the real beginning of Israel's history uh, in the land uh, of Egypt. But then we come to the second intermediate period. This is the time of Hyksos rule. Now the Hyksos were foreigners. The Hyksos were not native Egyptians. They were Semites, just like Israel uh, were Semites. But there was a dis there, there was chaos for whatever reasons uh, in the administration of Egypt, and so the Hyksos uh, took advantage of that. They took advantage of that and now usurped the throne. We have a foreign rule uh, in Egypt during uh, this particular this particular time. Uh, and if my dating of the Exodus is correct, and I believe it is, that would mean that the Hyksos were the, were, were the initiators of the persecution, the bondage, uh, the oppression uh, that Israel was going to endure now for those hundreds of years. If you look at Exodus chapter 1, look at Exodus chapter 1, uh, we read these words, right, that there arose a Pharaoh um, that did not know Joseph, that did not know Joseph. And that ignorance of Joseph and what Joseph did has precipitated now the beginning of the oppression. Now, remember when the Israelites, when Jacob and his family went first into the land of Canaan, that it was a pretty cushy situation, right? They were given Goshen. Uh, They're up in the, the delta, northern, northern part of Egypt, in the delta region, called Upper, or, or, or Lower Egypt, rather. It's kind of interesting what Lower Egypt and Upper Egypt, I would tend to think that Upper Egypt is north and Lower is south, but just the opposite, because the Mediterranean going down. So here's this delta region. Uh, Goshen here, it was fertile. 
Uh, it was a place really where they enjoyed a great deal of prosperity. So for the first, really for the first hundred plus years uh, that uh, Israel was in Egypt, uh, they were well favored. They were well favored and they prospered and they began to multiply uh, and they became now a very numerous people. But then here comes a king who did not know Egyptian history. And this is itself fascinating because the Egyptians were obsessed with their own history. They were obsessed with what uh, had taken place that brought them to where they were at that particular time. So to have a, a pharaoh uh, that arose that didn't know Egyptian history, that didn't know Joseph here even, uh, is, is very, very suspicious. So it parallels what I'm suggesting that we have here a foreign element uh, now that is coming into the land. And what is he afraid of? What is this Pharaoh afraid of? He looks at Israel now and he says, boy, there's a lot of people here. All right, they're more, they're more numerous than we are. They're more numerous than we are. Now, if this was a native Egyptian, I dare say that that would not have been a true statement or a true assessment. There were more Egyptians around than Israelites. There were a couple million uh, Israelites were certain at this time, uh, but that didn't even compare to the whole population of, of, of Egypt. But he was afraid that of these people that were more numerous than we are. So that again, that tells me it's, it's a, a foreign element uh, that is there in, in the land. And so they do what this, this Pharaoh uh, does what he can do to, to thwart and to uh, bring in the, the bondage and the slavery uh, of Egypt or, or of the Israelites in this particular period. And so for now all of that, uh, all of that time, uh, subdued, put in bondage, uh, enslaved, hard bondage, iron ferns of affliction. Uh, and this is where the Lord is going to bring, bring Moses. So that second intermediate period uh, is when the oppression of Egypt or, or, or of Israel began. Uh, and the bondage, I say, was, was fierce. But I say the text, even, even though we don't have uh, names that are mentioned, we can read between the lines here as we compare what we know about the Egyptian history with what now the Bible history is revealing to us. Uh, and again, there's a compliment here. Uh, there's no contradiction. There's no contradiction in this place. Other times, as I said uh, last week or so, there are going to be times when we have absolute contradictions between secular history and the biblical history. Uh, and we reject that. The Bible's always right. But here's a situation where there's a compliment. Uh, where I, I say there's no contradiction, but it does help us put this within the world uh, in which then the Bible was given, in which this biblical history uh, is taking place. Now, the second intermediate period, I'm just being suggestive here, transition to the new empire. The new empire was a time of unprecedented glory, uh, and we have now... Uh, the empire being created, the Hyksos are expelled. But even though the Hyksos are expelled, the bondage and the slavery continues. And you can well imagine why. The Hyksos were Semites. They were a Semitic people, just like Israel was a Semitic people. And now they have been expelled, but there was now going to be suspicion. All right, there was going to be a suspicion about anybody that was Semitic. 
uh, in the land. And so the new pharaoh, the Egyptian pharaoh, beginning here of the 18th dynasty, uh, is going to continue on that, that oppression. And this brings us uh, to, the time, to the time now of Moses, as God spares uh, the male children. We know the story here that we have in the, uh, in the scripture. And, and Moses, and, and Moses uh, comes to the scene. But in the meantime, as, as the empire is established, there are, there are uh, more and more inroads that Egypt is making uh, into Palestine. Uh, and Palestine now becomes a vassal state uh, of, of, the, of, the, of Egypt. Uh, all of these little outposts, all these little outposts were being created. And in very, it, it, most likely, part of, what, part of what the Israelites were making straw for were for these military fortifications. Uh, these military depots that would give them supply places as they would go then into uh, the land of Canaan uh, itself. Remember, the pyramids were already there. They, they weren't making pyramids. Uh, but most likely these depot cities, these military outposts, uh, that would be places where they would get their supplies as they go into, into Palestine. Uh, most likely, that's the Python and the Ramesses, uh, that are referred to here. Now, w without going into, without going into all of the history, we come to Moses. And my, my suggestion is now that, giving our dating of this, that the Pharaoh of the Exodus, the Pharaoh of the Exodus, would have been Tutmosis the third. Tutmosis the third. When I was a boy, school, first learning all this stuff. Uh, the Pharaoh of the Exodus was Amenhotep II, right? Uh, and we made Amenhotep II because we just, on the basis of the dating, uh, that was the Pharaoh that was in 1446. There's been a little revision of Egyptian chronology. I don't really care who the Pharaoh is. I'm more concerned about that date. And with the revised Egyptian chronology that becomes now a standard uh, recognition, the Pharaoh of the Exodus would have been Tutmosis III. Now, here's the wonder of this to me. Amenhotep II was, yeah, he was, we made him famous because that's who we claim to be the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But Tutmosis III was the most powerful king. He was the most powerful king of the new empire, the most powerful king of the 18th dynasty, time in which we're going to see Moses is uh, coming into the, to the picture here. All these military invasions in, into, uh, into Palestine, into Canaan, uh, fortified cities. He was the most powerful king on the face uh, of the earth at that time. And the most powerful king in the, in the 18th dynasty as far as Egypt was concerned. Now here's the wonder then. Here's the wonder. Now come, comes the Exodus. Comes the Exodus. And how, how is this Pharaoh humbled, you see? How was he humbled? Here's the most powerful king during this whole dynasty period. And he's nothing before God. And God brings him low. And it doesn't take a great military exercise to uh, affect this deliverance. But by the power of God and the grace of God and the blood of the sacrifice, uh, here, comes, here comes the Exodus. And this Pharaoh, the most powerful king, 
uh, at, uh, of this whole era is brought low. Uh, God is the one that's supreme. God is the one that is supreme, and God is manipulating, God is controlling even this uh, most powerful king, bringing him under subjection, bringing him, subduing him, uh, humiliating him uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, but here comes, I say here comes, uh, here comes the Exodus. Now that is a crucial time theologically. Uh, Passover, all the plagues, you look at all those plagues, and this is another interesting thing that we can uh, perhaps develop sometime. You look at each of those plagues, Remember, the Bible says that this judgment, these plagues were against the gods of the Egyptians. Uh, and we know, we know quite a bit about the Egyptian religion, right? And some of the, and virtually every one of those plagues, uh, virtually every one of those plagues was a smack in the face uh, of some Egyptian god uh, that uh, was being uh, shown to be a not God uh, at all. God, Jehovah, is the one that is absolutely supreme uh, in, in every way. That's very fascinating. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't push books. Uh, but I did write a book here a couple years ago on, on Exodus, the Gospel of Exodus. If you're interested in having a more detailed uh, account of some of that uh, history and the plagues, T take a look at that. Take a look at that book. I'm not going to go through all the details uh, here. Well, our, our time is gone. Uh, but we'll, we'll talk next. I don't think I'm here next week. Uh, but the ne next time we're together, uh, we'll continue this and look at what happens, how, what we know about the conquest that is going to fit here as well. Yes, ma'am. Why would he not? What? Yeah, why, why was he not recorded then? I mean, he's exactly, exactly. In all the history, all of these historical records that we have from Egypt and from Babylon, from us, they, they were propaganda. They were propaganda devices, if you will. Uh, they were commissioned by the king. They were commissioned by the king to make the king look good, right? And so everything was given credit to, to the king. So any other, well, we know that. And they knew it at the time as well. But no, Sesostris gets the credit for it, you see. Uh, and, and we see that all the, all the way through uh, the, the secular hi historical annals. Uh, what, what do we call these spin doctors, right? So the, these scribes were spin doctors, if you will. Uh, everything was propaganda for that particular leader. Yeah. Okay. All right, good. Well, let's close in prayer. Our dear Lord, we again stand amazed when we consider that thou art the God of history. That thou art the God of all nations even those that are ignorant of who thou art, those that have no knowledge of truth, but nonetheless they are in thy hands and thou dost control them and manipulate them and use them according to thy purpose. And even in regard to the history we've been looking at here, 
it was, according to Psalm 105, it was thy working and thy causing the heart of the Egyptians to turn against uh, the Israelites that were there so that I would demonstrate thy power and thy majesty uh, in delivering them from that iron furnace of affliction. So, Lord, let us have confidence that thou was the God of history or also the God of the present and that thou dost control situations and circumstances and nations and leaders the same today as thou didst then. So give us that confidence then, Lord, to look away from the scary stuff of now to the reality of thy eternal throne. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.